Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 528, where we covered part two of my interview with Lisa O'Brien, titled The Non-Perspective Part Two. This week, Lisa and I continued our conversation, and she continued to elaborate on her points that she believes make up the case for the guilt of Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin. Just like last week, I let Lisa talk. I wanted to make sure you all had the opportunity to hear her perspective without me interrupting her or trying to steer the conversation in any different direction. So in this week's Friday follow-up, I'll be answering your questions and elaborating a little bit more on the points that Lisa made during our conversation. I also want to take this opportunity again to thank Lisa for coming on the show. It took a lot of guts for her to do that. Uh, she was very well aware, I'm sure, that her position is not particularly popular with our audience, and she was willing to subject herself to doing that, so all the respect to Lisa. And with that being said, let's go ahead and move on with your questions, Mike. Okay. Our first question is from Michelle. Are you claiming that a family member has never killed their child plus the child's friends who were present, or specifically a step-parent, stranger, etc.? Yeah, so I saw that on the fan page, and I believe that was actually directed at Lisa, and she herself and some other people added some links underneath there to some studies about, uh, what's the term, filicide, mm -hmm. I believe is the new term that I just learned, meaning a, a parent killing a child. And as it turns out, that's it's not accurate to say that it's never happened. It's actually happened several times uh, throughout the study. You know, it breaks down the age of victims and whether it was a male parent or a female parent or a biological parent or a step parent. And uh, one part of the study said that male offenders of filicide, meaning they killed one of their children, are far more likely to kill other people as well, either the mother or other children, it said specifically in the study. So we're not intending to get into a big debate about how many times this happened before. The point Lisa was making was that she found it reasonable that the West Memphis PD didn't uh, investigate further any of the parents of the victims because that had never happened before. And I think the point here that Michelle was making is that uh, it's not valid that that has actually happened before. But then again, they, you know, the West Memphis PD likely might not have known that. They didn't have the internet like we have it now uh, to be able to research things like that. But at the same time, I still maintain my position that you should always start with the people closest to the victims and work out in concentric circles in any case. Unless you have a direct eyewitness right up front that says, I saw this person do it, you always want to start with the people closest, especially when you have this level of body concealment because that is absolutely an indicator that it's someone with a known personal relationship that uh, would would know that they would be considered a suspect if the bodies were found. Whereas someone who had no relationship with the victims you know, could just leave the bodies and get out of there because nobody's going to assume or connect them with the victims. In the interview, you and Lisa had a bit of a disagreement regarding the difference between legal and factual guilt. You ended with an agree to disagree. Could you expand a bit on what you were trying to get at during the interview? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that Lisa and I ever really got on the same page there, not so much as far as disagreement, but our our use of the terms. Uh, so what I was trying to say is that, you know, the, the Alford plea is definitely proof of legal guilt. The boys, or the, the men now, uh, the West Memphis Three, are guilty in the eyes of the law. They pled guilty, even though they maintain their innocence. And my only point was simply that 
that, that doesn't necessarily mean they're factually guilty. And that's why we're, we're continuing to investigate the case. And what I meant by that is factual guilt is, you know, did they actually do it? You can be convicted of a crime or plead guilty to a crime that you didn't factually or actually commit. And you would be legally guilty, but not factually guilty. But, you know, factual guilt isn't something that is considered in the eyes of the law. That's just, you know, a, a practical explanation for, you know, in, in my opinion, uh, the West Memphis Three are innocent of this crime. I've yet to see any case. Lisa certainly hasn't changed my mind by the point she made. I had mostly heard all those points before, and, and I just don't think it makes a strong case for guilt. So I believe that they are factually innocent, but I concede that they are legally and technically guilty. But I believe that we, we, we have the wrong guy, and that's what I meant by factual guilt. And, and you'll hear that a lot when, when we're investigating any kind of case. Uh, we'll find new evidence, and you know there may so something like a Brady violation uh, goes towards the legal end of the case, but nothing against the factual part of the case. Meaning a Brady violation could get a conviction overturned. However, the person could still be factually guilty, but legally they may not be because they didn't use the proper procedures to convict them. As opposed, you might find other evidence where you know you find a new eyewitness who says that they saw someone else commit the crime. In that case, that would be evidence of factual innocence. And then it's the lawyer's job to figure out how to work that into a legal argument. Because as you know, most post-conviction relief cases, once you get beyond the conviction, sometimes factual innocence or guilt doesn't really matter anymore. It has a lot more to do with whether or not you received a fair trial. So it has more to do with the legal side of things than the factual side of things. Okay, and Raven says, if Damien was really bragging and boasting to random people that he'd killed the boys, especially the softball girls, and he'd actually done it, then why was so much effort taken towards concealment? Why deny it for the next 25 years? If he'd been such a braggart and proud of his work, wouldn't he have wanted to go down in history with everyone knowing what he'd done? Yeah, I mean, we we can't really conclusively say what someone would do or think, but I certainly find it very inconsistent. Uh, with the claims of innocence and the extreme measures that went into concealing the crime to then be, be out bragging about it. Now, like I said in the interview, he may very well have done it. You know, look, given what I've seen from from Damien's personality and characteristics back then, you can even go through Exhibit 500 that talks about some of the psychological issues that Damien had. Uh, we know that he was a suspect. He was being questioned. Rumors were spreading very quickly. Remember, they lived in a small community in a trailer park. So when they're standing out in the front yard questioning Damien, and then they start questioning, you know, they start talking to Narlene Hollingsworth, and, you know, they they start speaking with other people in the trailer park, rumors start to spread, people start talking. Uh, I don't necessarily think that he didn't say it, and, I, and I'm not positive about this, I'll have to ask him, but I believe it, I believe he said that he, he may have or probably did even say it, which wouldn't surprise me at all if that's the case, uh, because that just seems to be, that seems to be consistent with his personality. And that if everybody, you know, look at the way that he he wore black and he liked to shock people. And it was, to me, it was a lot of a defense mechanism, his his personality and the way he acted back then. So I could completely see him being innocent of the crime, all the rumors being spread around about him and him playing on that, being 18, 19 years old and, and maybe not realizing the consequences that could really have. You know, he could have just been being a smart ass about it. He may not have said it at all. Uh, but certainly, that being an actual confession is not consistent, in my opinion, with 
all of the other facts of the case, given the the concealment of the crime scene and the fact that he's maintained his innocence for all these years. Uh, it just doesn't seem to add up to me, no. Okay, Emily has a couple of points here. First, she says, I'm confused about the DNA testing. Was there testing done by the defense or all by the prosecution? What was tested exactly by each party if there were separate testings? Where are the results? There was a lot of stuff tested, mostly done. As a matter of fact, I think it was all done by the defense. But keep in mind, in order to do that, they have to put a motion before a judge. Remember, the state owns the evidence. So they can't just go take, say, for example, the the hair that was found in the, the bindings of, of Michael Moore. They can't just go into evidence, grab that, and test it. They have to put that before a judge. The judge has to approve the testing. And then it gets sent out by the state and returned back to the state to, re- to maintain that chain of custody of that evidence. Uh, but the, the defense was the one pushing for the DNA testing. The defense was the one paying for the DNA testing. Uh, there was a lot. I don't have a complete list in front of me, but there was, you know, there was a lot of hairs tested. They were trying to test uh, stomach contents. There was a skin tag found in, in one of the bindings. So there was a lot that was tested. There are still some results that we have not been able to find yet. And, and the, there was a status report written in July by Damien Eccles' defense um, talking about some of the testing that was out there. They were released in August. This is all 2011. Uh, and then on August 26th, uh, after the release, Ellington gave a press release saying that you know when they get the results of the DNA testing, that they will be running them through CODIS. And then those results seem to have just disappeared. You know, I've spoke with uh, Damien and Lori in the past, and they said uh, they were they remember being disappointed when the results came back because there was nothing there. Uh, they really thought they would get some res- the results that would give them an actual innocence exoneration, and there really wasn't anything in that final round of testing. But you know, they didn't have the results. But so you know, we talked about trying to get them from a lawyer, but uh, one of their lawyers. But remember, a lawyer is going to charge three hundred dollars an hour for everything they do. So we went to the prosecutor's office because they should be public record and they have to supply those. Uh, when I went down there to find them, uh, they were unable, the Scott Ellington's office was unable to locate those records. They relayed the same thing that Lori and Damien had said. Actually, not Damien. Damien doesn't follow it too much. But Lori said that there was uh, nothing nothing in the results. Um, that's That's what I was told in the office, that it was the same thing. That uh, as far as they remember, there was nothing, nothing conclusive in the results or nothing that was of any note. But I still have not been. I've been trying to get a hold of those test results for a long time, uh, for several months. Like I said, I drove down to Arkansas to get them. And so far, nobody's been able to locate them for me. Next, what's the relationship between the jury foreman and the attorney that didn't report the misconduct at the time? When was the jury misconduct first discovered as a potential issue? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't have all those details in front of me. That was something I looked into a long time ago. Shoot, kind of caught me off guard. Yeah, I can't. I, I don't know exactly what the relationship was. We'll have to I'll have to look it up, and we'll get back to him on the next Friday follow up. What Lisa said, I think, was that the attorney represented the foreman's brother, but somehow he knew that he was pushing to get on the jury. Uh, he didn't come forward with that information until years later. Um, is, do you have anything on there about while we're talking about? So the, the answer to that question is I don't I don't know the exact specifics off the top of my head. I did it one time, but I don't have it off the top of my head. Uh, does does it? Speaking of jury misconduct, though, were there any more comments or questions that you have about Jesse Miss Kelly's confession being brought up during the, the deliberations? Yeah, her very next point. It says in the trial, was it mentioned as a quote statement of Jesse Miss Kelly or a confession? 
What is Lisa O'Brien's basis for not thinking it was considered in deliberations? I don't know. She had said that there was uh, something in the in the jury notes, the juror notes that they were taking during deliberations that was crossed out. Um, I did go back and look at that, and there is some stuff that's crossed out in there, but it's actually quite clear and not crossed out. Uh, they, they The jurors listed pros and cons for guilt or innocence for each individual witness. And I know because we're researching Jason Baldwin for this week's episode, uh, in, in his, it says as, as a con, meaning leaning towards guilt, it just straight up says Jesse, it says like Jess Miss, it says J-E-S-S-M-I-S-K statement. Another part, it just straight up says Jesse Miss Kelly's statement led to arrest, which none of that should have was able to be considered at all. And it wasn't even crossed out. So I, I don't, I don't agree with any argument that the jury didn't consider that in their deliberations. There, there's one part where there's something that was written and it's blacked out. And then next to it, it says no discard. Uh, so whatever they were talking about, they weren't supposed to be discussing. Maybe that said Miss Kelly confession. Maybe it said something else. But it does absolutely say in their notes in several places that they were considering Jesse Miss Kelly's statement, which was not in evidence and was not able to be considered by the jury. Okay, her next point is, what is Lisa's assumption that the recording started only once Damien became a suspect based on? Well, I don't, I don't want to put words in Lisa's mouth or assume what she might be assuming, but I think the point she was making was they didn't record Damien's interviews because he wasn't a suspect yet and that their practice was that they only recorded once someone was a suspect. Uh, I think I said it during the episode, and I'll say it again now. I, I completely disagree with that. I mean, Damien was the first person questioned. He was questioned repeatedly, given a polygraph examination. I mean, remember the notes, I think it was Bill Durham, in the post-polygraph interview wrote that he stopped denying it, and he wrote in the in the margin, or he put in parentheses, uh, admittance through lack of denial or something like that. So there's no way you can say that he wasn't a suspect. And then when he was arrested... I think Gitchell had told the press that you know they they had been zeroing in on Damien or Damien had been a suspect from the very beginning. So Damien Eccles most certainly was a suspect for the entirety. Now there were other suspects and there were other lines of investigation as well, but he absolutely was a suspect. And I personally think that the the when they would use the recorder was basically they would record confessions. Uh, now there are other instances where or, or they would they would record things that were helpful to their case. And that sounds bad to say, and and it's not necessarily. Meaning, if they're talking to, if if, if I if I pull you in, Mike, and say, okay, I want to talk to you about this crime. What do you know? And you say, oh, I don't really know anything about it. I don't have any idea. And we chat for a little bit. Do you remember this? Do you remember that? And you say nothing. Then you go. Now, if I if I talk to you and say, do you know anything about this crime? And you're like, yeah, actually, I saw so and so do it. Okay, hang on. Let's get the recorder and let's tape this. Yeah. And I think you guys alluded to that in the interview. It's uh, It could have been an issue of resources, too, for the police department. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's, you know, it's millions of dollars. But back then, every 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 time you record something, you got to use a, a, a tape. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's not like we can just put it on a hard drive like we do now. They did have the equipment, but, you know, why waste a tape? And remember, and, and police officers know, I can't speak for the West Memphis PD, but I can speak to a lot of the officers that I know because I've discussed things like this with in other cases that, you know, they don't particularly like writing every little note down and doing things because they know that everything they write, everything they record becomes record. So a lot of times they're not gonna they're not gonna put anything into the record unless it's it's helpful to their case. Next she says, in reference to the red rayon fibers, what test is she referring to that makes a chemical comparison? 
What is the likelihood, statistically, that the fiber would be similar to any other garment made of red rayon? Why are we only considering comparison to the suspects and not to how common the fibers are to any given red rayon garment? I think it's just a matter of only looking at the pieces of the puzzle that, that fit your case. Lisa and I will disagree on this. I think there is, there's nothing to that fiber. There's a red rayon fiber that would match any, the, the, the similarities between that fiber and Jason Baldwin's mother's bathrobe is that they were both red and they were both rayon. And that's it. And there was later testing done that actually, I, I believe, ruled out that, you know, that we're, we're, you know, with modern, more modern technology, they ruled out that it did not come from that particular garment. Even if it did, how many of those garments are, are out there? They didn't, they didn't look in the family's homes. You know, they looked in buyers and they pulled a few items out of there. They never took anything from the Hobbs house, uh, Stevie Branch's parents. They took very little out of the, the Moore's house to test anything against. And I believe I was just reading yesterday that they even, because it was, again, while researching Baldwin's case, that there were other fibers that matched from some other places as well. It's just, it's a nothing thing. And, and I did look up is absolutely fiber, microscopic fiber analysis, just like hair fiber or hair analysis is considered junk science and is being thrown out. I mean, lots of cases are being thrown out for that exact reason because it was completely unreliable in the 90s, which is when they were doing it all the time. I mean, they take, you know, a hair on a crime scene and a hair off your head and look at them under a microscope and say they're similar. We can't rule them out. But the similarities are way deeper. If you get into, they, you know, they, later they could test them for DNA and find out that they're not similar at all, that they did not come from the same person. So that fiber evidence to me is just, it's just worthless and it means nothing, in my opinion. Since the lawyers can't testify, how could the diver know who the knife belonged to? That info would have been very difficult to get into evidence without Baldwin testifying. Yeah, so she's referring to our conversation about the lake knife, where I, I had a hard time following that line of question, her line of thought there, you know, when she said that, you know, why didn't Jason's defense tell the, the jury that that was Jason's knife? Because Jason has told me that that was, in fact, his knife a year earlier. He was having an argument with his mom, and they were out there fishing on the dock, and the knife went in the water. But no, the diver could not test it. You couldn't ask the even if the diver knew, he still couldn't testify because the only way he could know is hearsay. You know, this is completely against the rules of evidence. A lawyer cannot testify. A lawyer can't say this is Jason Baldwin's knife. That's not how it works. You have to put somebody on the stand with direct knowledge as to whose knife that was and ask them. The diver couldn't have done it. There's just no way they could have gotten that evidence in unless they put Jason Baldwin himself on the stand. And and really, if you read the trial transcripts, Jason Baldwin's defense attorney's strategy was just to punt, to let him be just just kind of fade away. There was no evidence. There was well, you'll hear Sunday. There's very little evidence against him, uh, and it was it was it was kind of very very other than Miss Kelly's confession, which was not allowed in the trial, even though it got in anyway. But he didn't even really put up a defense. He didn't put up much for alibi. He didn't put up anything. He just kind of let the trial be about Damien and hoped at the end that whatever happened with Damien, that the jury would differentiate between the two. But in my opinion, because of the Jesse Miss Kelly confession that they did know about and did discuss, if they had determined that Damien was guilty, then they were going to throw Jason in with him no matter what, because they had heard the confession where the two of them were together. All right. And our last point regarding jailhouse informants, Michael Carson stating he was out of his mind and had no idea what he is doing is not a recantation. 
but does that stand up as reliable? She's asking this question to Lisa on the fan page, but I'll pose it to you, Bob. What are your thoughts on the statistics of wrongful convictions on jailhouse informants? At the very least, shouldn't that just make it not worthy of consideration? You know, there's a lot of states that are putting forth legislature that disallows jailhouse informants uh, because they are so unreliable and they are so consistently attached to wrongful convictions. It's just a, it's a recipe for disaster all the time. You know, people are in jail and especially if they're in there for a lesser crime. You know, I think uh, Carson was in for burglary. You know, he's not facing a lot of time. And if he can help out the prosecutor get a convict, get a murder conviction, then he might be able to get a deal for it. So it's just a bad situation anyway. But yeah, so so Carson's recantation, and I use air quotes with that, wasn't necessarily recantation. He didn't say the conversation didn't happen. What he came out later and said, I don't know what happened. I was on drugs. I was out of my mind. He apologized to Jason Baldwin. He said, I, I have no idea what happened or, or why I was saying that. So yeah, why that's not exactly a direct recantation, it certainly calls the credibility of the statement into question. And again, my, my whole deal with Carson is, how completely inconsistent it would be for Jason Baldwin, who has always maintained his innocence, who has never, never swayed from that in any way, just all of a sudden decides that some, some guy he just met in jail to say, oh, hey, guess what? I killed the boys and this is how I did it. Uh, and also, you know, some of the details that Carson gives are not consistent with the actual crime scene. All right, some good conversation here. Let's take a quick break and we'll get back to it. All right, this next one's from Fred. Lisa stated that the boys were not held underwater with sticks or anything else. She stated that they were essentially held underwater because of the suction of the mud at the bottom of the ditch, and that there is no way for predation of the groin to occur. I've seen others argue the same points in the past. Lisa also said that the officer who found Michael dislodged him just by tapping him with his foot, which, quote, proves there was no predation or he would have been dislodged by the predator. Bob, can you spend some more time unpacking everything that this has known about how the boys were submerged? the positions they were in, whether they were in one fixed position or if there was some movement in the water, and anything else that is documented in the case or known from experiments with fetal pigs or other experiments. Okay, so I've done a lot more research on this, and I'd actually already done some before the interview, but I didn't want to be interrupting Lisa, so, so we'll explain to it now. Personally, I think there is zero chance the boys were smashed down into the mud, and, and there's a number of reasons for that. The first thing you can do is go to the autopsy reports that are on Callahan's. And look specifically at Stevie Branch. So Stevie Branch's face was the one that was just mutilated. The left side of his face had all those gouging wounds, which you know some people say that was from knives. Other people say that was from animal predation. Personally, I think the latter is probably accurate. Besides the different medical opinions, I don't see someone taking a knife and gouging at someone's cheek repeatedly, but never pushing the knife in far enough to puncture the inside of the cheek or go into the gums. It's just a bunch of gouges, which to me look much more like a bunch of bites from a turtle or a fish or something. But Lisa's argument was that there's no way that could be caused by animal predation because their faces were stuffed down into the mud. So they, they couldn't get them out. So let's look at the autopsy report first. And what you'll find in the autopsy report is Dr. Peretti goes into detail about the orifices, the, the nose, the ears, the mouth, what he finds in there. And you know what he doesn't find in any of them is mud. Now, there is no way. Now, you know, mud on the body can be rinsed off as you pull, pull them up out of the water. And the autopsy report does note that, you know, there was some, some dried mud on them. They were in muddy water. 
uh, and dried leaves on the bodies. But when he's when he's inspecting the nose, mouth, ears, eyes, there is no mention, zero of any mud. Now, if your face is jammed down into the mud for 18 hours, your your cavities would be packed full of mud. There's just no way around that. I've also seen the autopsy photos, uh, which are unfortunate, but I wanted to verify, see if maybe it was something pretty just didn't mention. And you can see the the bodies before they were cleaned off when there's still leaves and stuff on them and very clear shots of their faces and there's no evidence of any mud in their eyes, ears, mouth, or nose. So to me, that is a strong case for they were not stuffed down in water. Another issue is lividity. Uh, so lividity, which we've discussed in detail with other cases and in this one, is the settling or pooling of blood in the body caused by gravity after death and then after a period of time, and, it, and it's a huge range of time, anywhere from 6 to 12 hours, you know, that's, that's kind of average. But then if it's colder and the water can affect it, and also movement can affect lividity. And the fact that there, there was lividity, but it would still blanch at 3 in the afternoon or 4 in the afternoon when uh, Kent Hale, the coroner, looked at the bodies, uh, is indicative of a couple of things. One, it could just be that the time of death is much later than than I personally think that it is, but uh, consistent with what Peretti said, you know, if the bodies, you know, he said time of death could be anywhere from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. Well, if they died at 6 in the morning by 4 in the afternoon, that's 10 hours, you know, lividity could not be fixed quite yet. But again, you have all the different factors. And one of the big ones is that I've been reading up quite a bit on is movement of the body. Uh, just Just like anything else that would settle, if the body is dead still, and the, the the blood were to pool down at the lowest point due to gravity. And then it, it doesn't solidify, but that's a good way, to I guess, to describe it to, for anybody that doesn't understand the, the medical science of it. It just it coagulates, and then it stains the skin a very dark purple in that location. And at that point, it becomes fixed. So if you turn the body, the same area would stay stained. It wouldn't move. But if the body is in a constant state of motion, so say it's just like in the water and just slowly rocking back and forth the entire time, it takes much, much, much longer for the lividity to actually fix. So that's one indicator that maybe if the time of death was, in fact, the evening before, you know, around 7, 8 o'clock, 6, 7, 8 o'clock, which we don't know that for certain, but if that's the case, then really lividity should likely have been fixed unless they were in motion like that, moving. But the other piece of that puzzle is if they were jammed down into the mud, which creates a suction, there, the lividity likely not only would have been fixed, but we would see pressure marks. And pressure marks are anything that was causing pressure on a part of the body where lividity is fixing, where the blood's pooling. You would actually see like a white line where the edge of the mud was, where any rocks were on their face, anything like that. We don't see any of that with the boys, which to me is another indicator that they were not pressured down into the mud like that. So the fact that the lividity is not fixed, I think they were shaken back and forth. There's no mud anywhere in any of the autopsies indicated in their nose, their mouth, their ears, their eyes, none whatsoever. It just to me is a good indication that their faces were up in the water. It was so the water was able just to continually flow past them. You know, if they were jammed down in the mud, you would see mud in all of those different orifices. And then again, the process she's describing of being stuffed down into the mud for any of you that aren't familiar, it, it's you know it's like gumbo clay. I always just call it. It's almost like quicksand. That's the type of mud that's in that area, which is where you know it's it's boot stealing mud. 
And what I mean by that, and, and Mike's laughing at me right now. I am. I've never heard that before. Right, but but there are people out there that know exactly what I'm talking about. It's when you you go walking in a creek bottom or something like that. And you take a step, and your foot goes down in the mud, and you pull your foot up, and your foot comes out without your boot, because it it creates a suction, sure. and it won't come out. You know, Mike Allen's description of Michael Moore coming to the surface was simply, as Lisa said, he just he he was falling back, he felt something hit his foot, and Michael Moore just popped up. I don't think that would happen if he was jammed down, suctioned down into the mud. It would take much more effort. Uh, and there's a lot saying about the different position the boys' bodies were in, given by uh, Detective Ridge when he pulled out Christopher and Stevie. But again, you know, he they weren't left in place, and we grabbed them and just picked them up out of the water. We didn't get an accurate position there. But again, he was able to get his arms under them and pick them up. And I've read his, t- I've never seen any of his testimony where he said that they were suctioned down into the mud at all. I think there's that's a lot of people just making assumptions about how they were in the mud. I was told again by other investigators that have worked with people that were at the crime scene that that said she said that she knew, was very certain of the fact that they were they were sticks used with the bindings stuffing them down into the mud. But I can't even take that for fact because I've never seen any evidence of that either. That that's my opinion of likely what happened. That explains them being up where the bodies can move back and forth. That explains the lack of pressure marks. It explains why there was no mud packed into any of their orifices when they were brought out of the water. But they also didn't move downstream, and also they'd be widely open for any kind of animal predation. So uh, that's my long-winded response to them being stuffed in the mud. I disagree, and I'm sure Lisa will likely disagree with that. But I think there's a lot more evidence indicating they were not stuffed down into the mud than there's evidence that they were. Okay, and Allison says... Before revisiting the medical evidence, I felt that the murders were sexual in motive based on how the boys are found and Christopher's injuries. Did the West Memphis police ever investigate any known sex offenders or investigate it through this lens? The police clearly believe that the boys were sexually assaulted, so I have trouble understanding how they could have investigated a satanic cult angle without investigating sexual predators in the area. They actually did investigate predators in the area, and we're going to get into all of that when we talk about the new investigation. Uh, but they were—they were—they did not ignore that angle. They—they they questioned several people that were known sex offenders. All right, this next one's from Lynn. Have you already expressed your views about why the boys were naked? The crimes do not appear sexual. Was it to keep the bodies submerged? The efficiency of the killer is remarkable, considering how short the time slot was, how much pressure there was to hide the bodies, and the scarcity of evidence at the crime scene. The testimony by the expert on the turtle bites makes sense. Did anyone argue that the time in the water was too short for the amount of animal marks? And also along those lines, can you also talk about Lisa's general opinion that there was no animal predation? Sure. So I guess the first point there was my opinion of why they were naked. Personally, I believe it was for concealment. I think that if you put, I know that if you put a body in the water with clothes on, especially with a current, even a light current, they're more likely to be found. I mean, right away you'll see, you know, the clothes will start filling up. They'll, they'll act like a sail. They'll, they'll, they'll pull them downstream. They'll pick them up. They'll have clothes being visible. My personal hypothesis, and that's just this is just my hypothesis. This is not a factual evidence thing at all. I personally believe that they were attempted to put into the water, and the the clothes were causing them to float and and expose themselves. They brought the I think that the killer or killers brought them back out of the water, stripped their clothing off, and tied them up, and then pinned them down in the water with the bindings in order to keep them concealed. Um, evidence of this, you know, and it's it's kind of a little off topic here, but. 
look at the autopsy reports of the boys and look at what even Peretti said about the bindings. I think there was one binding that showed any kind of hemorrhaging, and that was on Michael Moore. You know, when I was going through Branch's autopsy last night, it shows that, you know, there's there's no hemorrhaging whatsoever along any of the bindings, wrists or ankles. One of them even had, I think it was, I think it was just one, that the skin was torn from the bindings and still no hemorrhaging, right. which are all indicators that it was done post-mortem. post-mortem. Right. right. After they were already, after they were already deceased, they were tied up. And I think that's a good indicator of the purpose for the tying up. And also keep in mind the way they were tied, again, would not stop them from moving, would not, would, it would not keep them from untying themselves right to right, left to left, wrist to ankle. All indications to me say that was done after they were already deceased, and it was done as part of the the concealment of the crime. So that's my opinion about why they were naked. Uh, as far as the animal predation and the amount of time they're in the water, we've seen. And again, and people will make this point. I, I don't. I don't find it a, a, a very valid counter, but it's, it's worth stating at least that we didn't do our test in the exact same body of water where the boys were found because the the little drainage ditch is not there anymore. So we did it in the bayou, 60 feet away from from where the boys were actually found. But we knew the results before we we did it. It's 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 absolute common sense for anyone that has ever spent any time in the in in nature in the woods, especially around water, that water like that is full of turtles. Uh, and I think I think Lisa made the point, which I, I strongly disagree with, that there were no turtles in that water. Period, which is ridiculous. I mean, we have like Ryan Clark. Christopher Byers' brothers wrote affidavits about how they were in the exact place where the boys' bodies were found and used to go back there and catch alligator snapping turtles and other and other turtles back there. So there actually were turtles in the water back then. And so what we were trying to do with our experiments is to see how will they react to any kind of flesh in the water. And as far as timing goes, I mean, remember the chicken, the first one we did, we tied a chicken to a rope, threw it off the pipe bridge into the water and came back uh, a couple, like four hours later. And it was gone. Yeah. I mean, it was just completely chewed up down to the bone. And then we did the test. You know, my theory was the water's murky. They can't see. How do most predators hunt? They hunt by smell. And so I think that the predators would, or would you know, even when they're scavenging, the turtles would follow a smell of blood or decomposing flesh. Uh, and, of course, it goes downstream. So you would, affect, you would expect the person or the body that was the furthest downstream to be attacked the worst. In this case, you had Byers, who was the furthest downstream, who had the genital mutilation, and Stevie Branch, that was right next to him, that had his face tore up. Michael Moore's 27 feet upstream and, and has very little uh, of the predation on him, or, or you know, if it is predation, but uh, injuries on his body. It's consistent with that. But as far as, hopefully by the time you guys hear this, I'll try to have the video. If I started piecing together, we, had, we have 30, 40 hours of GoPro footage of the turtles feeding on the, the chickens and the pigs. And I started to try to cut together just kind of a short video to give you an idea of what it looked like. And I'll try to finish that up this week. But it doesn't take any time at all. As soon as we put anything in the water and cleared out, usually by the videos within 15 minutes, the turtles came and they started chewing. And we're not just talking about that. People want to talk about the alligator snapping turtles. We're not only talking about alligator snapping turtles. They're also the standard snapping turtle, which are far more aggressive than the alligator. The alligator snapping turtles are much larger. During the day, they just lay in wait for prey. At night, they scavenge in little creeks just like the one where the boys were found. But, you know, red-eared sliders, painter turtles, uh, leatherbacks, not the kind of leatherbacks that live in the ocean, but uh, uh, soft-shell turtles, 
tons and tons of turtles, fish. We saw alligator gar in the water. So my whole point was we can argue each individual injury, whether or not it was it was pre-mortem or post-mortem, and whether it was animals or done with a knife. But in my opinion, to say that there was no animal predation, to, to me is just, it, it is not a valid argument whatsoever. Because I would challenge, and, and to make the argument that the detectives weren't attacked by turtles, I think was silly. Of course, I've never seen a turtle attack someone like that unless you you get in their space. They're very skittish. We saw that too. You know, when 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 the turtle when the turtles were all over like the pig carcass, as we would walk down to the carcass as soon as they would see us, and you'll see that in the video, they they scattered. They got away immediately. I would challenge anyone to go into any creek in Arkansas or anywhere in the, in that area and and throw any kind of flesh into the water and see if something doesn't attack it whether it's a turtle or a fish or or a crayfish i mean there's all sorts of things that could get at it i don't think it's possible to leave something in the water like that and not have it chewed on by something all right listener jesse has our last question is there a difference in civil and criminal paralegal training and civil and criminal rules of evidence uh, I don't know about the training. I assume so. They're they're very different areas of the law. I mean, j- just the burdens of proof are very different. You know, in a criminal case, the the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a pretty high burden for a prosecutor in a criminal case. Whereas in a civil case, the burden of proof is a preponderance of the evidence, which means that as as you weigh the scales of justice, if you determine fifty one percent of the evidence leans one way, then you can find that way. The rules of evidence, I believe, are the same. I, I guess I can't really answer that with any amount of certainty, but yeah, I, I believe the rules of evidence are the same. I mean, lawyers generally can't testify. You generally can't allow hearsay testimony in unless there are exceptions like to impeach someone. For example, if someone says, I never said something, then you can bring someone else in and say, they said that to me. And then you get you, you get lighter limitations during cross-examination than you do in direct examination. But they're definitely different areas of the law. I, I think that you know, there were a couple of times where, you know, my issue, when they were discussing the Alford plea, when, when Lisa and I were discussing the Alford plea, she cited her years of legal work as to why she feels the way she does about the Alford plea. And to me, that's really not, I mean, being a paralegal in civil law, there's no such thing as an Alford plea in civil law. I mean, it's not something that is really congruent with the two, but um, there is a difference. I believe the evidence rules are the same. The training is probably pretty much the same. It's just a, a different a different realm once you get into a courtroom. All right, that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. And this week, we are quickly approaching the end of the Season 5 before we get to our pause, where we take our mid-season break uh, and move on to Season 6. So tentatively, to give you guys a heads up, the plan is this week, we're going to discuss the case against Jason Baldwin. Uh, there'll just be one episode on it. We're going to go through the elements of evidence against him. We're not going to get real detailed. It'll probably be a shorter episode because we covered a lot of it in Lisa's interview. And then the following week, we're going to hear directly from Jason himself. He's going to come on the show and talk about the, his case and what he thinks about what we've done with the podcast and and what he thinks about where we're going in the future. Uh, we did get confirmation from Dan Stidham yesterday that he is going to be doing an interview as well. So we're going to hear from Dan Stidham. And then also we talked to Damian Eccles yesterday, and he's going to come on the show one more time before we take the midseason break and answer some questions for us. And you guys will hear directly from him. And then the final episode will be the wrap up of the investigation of the investigation. And that will be where we hit pause on the new case. 
So as of right now, we have five more episodes planned for season five before we take the mid-season break. And then on July 22nd, we will introduce and begin season six. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. These boxes are awesome and they are full... I don't even know if you did good with, a good job there. What the f*** is a train case? <laughs> I'm thinking like model toy trains. Starry eye, travel eye, mask in mint or gray. <laughs> God damn! Is this a foreign? Pro- is this where is this? No, from? they're from the United States. <laughs> Four seconds of silence, and here comes the cockbills. Right. All right, I'm going to talk to you guys again about something that's awkward to talk about. What's that, Bob? <laughs> F*** you, Mike. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. Bob, thanks a lot, man. You're welcome. Sick Mike. <laughs> sick as a dog. Sick as a dog. Mike's sick today.